Um, one of those films that seems to be playing all the time on TV, that you, you can't ever seem to not find it, is um, The Patriot. Uh, and it just seems like every, you know, around Memorial Day, around July 4th, or around, like, it just feels like that movie comes up a lot. Uh, and it's, this, it's uh, about the American Revolution and kind of the founding of our nation, the, the battle against uh, England and fight for this autonomy and independence. And Mel Gibson plays the role of a man who had been a soldier and now was the last thing he wanted to do was engage in this new battle. But he had a bunch of kids and the oldest son played by Heath Ledger uh, was, was really uh, excited about joining the military. I don't know if you remember this, this uh, <clears throat> how this movie played out, but he does join and he comes into battle and uh, finally uh, his dad kind of gets drawn in because he wants to participate at even um, at his trying to protect his son and saying, well, if, if I can't convince him to not, I'll come alongside of him and try and keep him out of harm's way. But there's this scene where uh, <clears throat> the, the son picks up this tattered flag, kind of representing the, the morale of what had happened to, uh, to, to the American side. And, and um, it was just in shambles and people were hurting and it just felt like the morale was leaning towards defeat. Um, but as the movie progressed and as the, the militia was mounted and as the forces, he's just sewing and piecing this flag back together. And at the end of the movie, after his son's death, the dad picks up this tattered flag, this tattered dream. Even at his son's death, he, he now leads the charge into what would ultimately lead them to freedom and victory and their own independence. It is a beautiful picture, a moving, compelling picture of what it means to see exiles restored. We don't think in terms of being in exile, but I would argue that a lot of our lives, we have gotten far from the life that maybe God intended from us and we ourselves are exiled. The role of Christians is to be a part of God's restoration. That is all of our callings. If we find ourselves as a follower of Christ, that, regardless of our day job, will make up what we get to do uh, for the Lord. And so what I want to talk about tonight is what does it mean to participate in God's restoration work? Um, and sometimes we get involved in the restoration of friendships, and sometimes we're restoring career path. Sometimes we're restoring um, our financial path because we've had to file for bankruptcy. Sometimes we get into the work of restoring a marriage. Sometimes we're restoring these kind of family dynamics. There are places in our lives that we find ourselves without ever meaning to, that we're in people in exile. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is go through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah chronicles this great and I think very timely word for us about people living in exile and not knowing how to follow after God. And yet even in exile, God taps them for a greater work. So just like we pray tonight, I am not alone. It is both a confession, <laughs> saying, thank you, God, I am not alone. But it's also a request, God, 
I know I'm not alone, but there's an area of my life that I'm alone. I haven't sensed your presence. Do you see how those things can be present at the same time? So just like we are all living in some kind of exile, far from the life that God actually intended, he's also calling us to be people of restoration and help others out of exile. So we have this picture, um, and it looks like in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to go kind of chapter by chapter through the verse uh, uh, six chapters or so over the next month or so. Um, and just like Nehemiah, we need to seek to identify the people in the exile because we're also in that place. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background so you understand what's happening, because they are a captive people. Now, we enjoy some of the greatest prosperity and the most amount of freedoms of all time. But it is hard to watch the news. It's hard to watch sports because everything feels captivated and politicized and, and it feels so divisive. But at this time, Babylon had conquered Israel. And so, uh, and that was in 586. And then as Babylon Empire, about 150 years later, kind of goes into decline, the Persian Empire rises to power. And so under King um, Cyrus, he had then sent and said, all of you Israelites who were conquered under the Babylonians, if you want, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back to your homeland. And so there was a few who did and settled back in their, uh, in their home city. But the city was in ruins. Um, and so here you have this Israelite by the name of Nehemiah, and he's living some 140 years after the fact in a town called Susa. Susa would be a thousand miles from Jerusalem. It would be the equivalent of being from here to Atlanta, Georgia, or here to about Denver, Colorado. It's quite a ways. But a messenger finds him there, and he gives him this report. And it, what's so interesting is that here's a guy who's probably been born and raised not in Jerusalem, but he so identifies with the people of God, even though they're scattered, even though they've been sort of in captivity, and, and even though he's living in the king's servitude, he feels so compelled by this movement. And so what had happened is that Ezra, and again, these books of Ezra and Nehemiah are closely linked. In fact, some scholars believe it was one book originally written because they're so connected. Ezra answers the call to go back to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the temple. Now keep in mind that the temple was centered to Jewish life. One of the things we've talked about is, is at least last week when we talked about blessed are those who are persecuted, if you were going to be um, kept out of the temple courts, you were going to be ostracized uh, and not allowed to be involved with the community. It was a practice of shunning. But here you had Ezra who felt led to return, but now the walls hadn't been repaired. And what the walls signified was not only your safety, but your identity as the people of God. You were left completely vulnerable. You and I might hear the news and we talk about what is vulnerability. Well, North Korea might just launch an EMP and take out our whole power structure, and then we have no power grid, and I can't get on Facebook. I mean, I'm being facetious, but you understand what it would mean to knock out our power grid. And you're like, wow, like, that's kind of a big deal. 
I grew up on the coast my whole life, but I never worried that people would somehow invade the West Coast. That, that was never, because I had this sort of faith in our military forces and our defense and all the things that go along with it. An actual wall, and I don't mean to be political here, but a physical wall was a difference maker. Please don't take that as anything more than just a scriptural observation for um, like 4,000 years ago, okay? That's all that is. But here you have people, a minority of people who have moved back, but they went back to rebuild their own lives. They weren't concerned about the collective good of their people. They're like, well, that's our home, so let's go back and start with our house. But now that their house, they still remained a vulnerable people. Most of them, if not all of them, didn't come back and go, you know what? We've got to reestablish ourselves as the people of God. We've got to rebuild the temple. No, it took Ezra doing that. And then they came back and they're like, well, let's rebuild the wall. No, they just wanted to rebuild their homes. And so word gets to Nehemiah, and this is where we start to pick up. And so the question that, that we have that, that starts to come up is, what do we do with God's revelation? Super important for understanding each of our calling to be people who restore God's kingdom on earth as God originally intended it. So here we go into Nehemiah chapter one, and, and it says these words, just in the first couple of verses, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of, I'm sorry, I forgot my glasses tonight. I'm gonna go ahead and read off of this because it's gonna sound very remedial if I just keep up with this. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, some a thousand miles away. Susa was the winter palace of the king Artaxerxes. He was a Persian king living in his winter palace and Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So it's high risk but high reward kind of a job. You had to have impeccable integrity to be entrusted with being the cupbearer to the king. Why? Because you literally, now keep in mind, kings were paranoid. They were, they were so worried that someone was gonna usurp their authority, take their power, that they only brought in the most trusted people and he would literally take a swig of every drink that the king would be poured. So he was gonna be the most trusted among them. And then everyone in the line, he's gonna help order. He was gonna be responsible for building the most trusted sort of servant clientele that would serve in the king's court, the courtiers, if you will. Isn't it interesting that here you are in exile, you're the king, but you can't even trust your own people. But here comes this Israelite who's living in captivity, but he's got it so good and he has impeccable integrity that you draft him into service and you literally entrust him with your life. He had so much going for him at this point, right? But if someone wanted to take out the king, they're going to take out Nehemiah first. Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, 
those who survive the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have all been buried, burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So this is what I think is so interesting, is that you have this role of the cupbearer. And Nehemiah had every reason in the world to not care that much. Nehemiah had everything to lose. I mean, he had prestige, but he also had crazy privilege. He's living in, quote, captivity, but he's living in the king's court with all the luxuries that follow his association with the king. And yet one of his kinsmen comes to him, one of his kinfolk, and says, oh my gosh, have you heard about our people living in exile, of which he's never actually experienced the community of Israelites because all he's ever known is captivity and exile. And he's broken. He's broken because he understands his original and first love. His allegiance is as a person of God, one of God's chosen. He had everything to lose and yet he's willing, and what we'll see in the coming weeks, he's willing to advocate on behalf of the Israelite nation and go and ask the king for basically a leave of absence. Now, what's interesting about this, for all he had to give up, I mean, he had shelter, he had protection, he had comfort, he had wealth, and he's willing to throw it all away for a project with no guarantees. Who does that? Nehemiah does that. And I want this to be an inspiring word for you. It's like, uh, maybe the best way, it's how can two people look at the same situation, whether it be injustice, uh, whether it be poverty, whether it be tragedy, whether it be abuse, vulnerability, and some people are completely unmoved. They're like, oh, that's too bad. Oh, he's unemployed. Well, it happens. Oh, they got cancer. Yeah, a lot of people get it. Sorry about that. Oh, your marriage is breaking up. Yeah, that seems to be more popular these days. Oh, um, you know, you, you know, you, you, um, you're at odds with your kids. I know, prodigals, it just happens. And yet other times, people are completely broken over the same stuff. Why is it that we have two groups of people when something happens? Why is it that when there's a hurricane and mass flooding, that there's some people that are moved to loot. Why is it that some people think, oh, I think I'll gouge with my hotel pricing or my gas pricing or, or my supplies, while other people are completely divested of themselves, give of themselves, start writing checks, start like going shopping, start wanting to go down there and help people move. They go borrow a friend's fishing boat and they're just going door to door, rescuing people on there. Why is it that one person is completely broken and the other is completely unmoved? Well, what's on? Who's playing this week on Monday Night Football? Do you notice how these things happen? I would say it's not until we are completely surrendered in Christ that when Christ resides in our heart, only then the Holy Spirit begins to move us and we're allowed to grieve. And I want to talk about what grieving looks like, especially through the life of, of, of Nehemiah here. Because 
Um, uh, one of the things, as I said, is that we're called to restore. And King Cyrus said to the Jew, if you want to go back, go back. And here's all these people that haven't really taken care to rebuild their national identity, let alone their national security. Except God has set them apart for a great plan and for a great purpose, except they're sort of just keeping to themselves at their own subsistence living. And so here you have this, this sort of lens. And, and, and Nehemiah knew something that I think every believer needs to know. And it's the lens about the purpose and the, and the, and the role of God in creation. Nehemiah knew God was a God of restoration. If you study the creation account, what you understand about Genesis 1 is that God, the creator God, takes chaos and makes order and we bear the image of God so whether you are a programmer or a stay-at-home mom whether you're a construction worker or a landscaper whether you are a musician or whether you're a school teacher whatever you do you bear the image of God and part of what that looks like is taking something that looks chaotic and bringing order and form to it. It's called a lesson plan. It's called changing dirty diapers and cleaning and, and teaching your kids and instilling in them a, a kind of value. It's, it's wanting to create nothing and start a business. This is part of God's design, but we can't lose the part of God's restoration regardless of our day job. Does that make sense? So God in the creation story takes what is formless and brings order. Well, if we follow the story, we realize we quickly get broken up, and just a few chapters later, God wants to make order out of chaos again, and we have Noah and the flood, and he sends the big flood, and he wants to reestablish it again. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant, and he's like, oh my gosh, these people, and he's trying to constantly make and restore the world as he originally intended it. Nehemiah knew the character and the nature of God, that God restores. So when Nehemiah hears a problem, he doesn't look at that as someone else's problem. <laughs> Boy, I hope those politicians get their act together. Boy, I hope they get some funding for that. Boy, I hope there's some good philanthropy behind that. He begins to fast and pray and get broken over something that he might have never even seen before. But he understands the very heart of God and God is always about restoration. And so he begins to give him, and what God does is God is always restoring broken places. And what God ultimately wants to do is restore all things. And so as it kind of uh, unfolds here in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 1, we are always part of God's response. If you've ever said yes to following Christ, part of what you get to do, part of what your calling is, is be part of God's restoration. So it means that we create a business model that looks fair and equitable, that we don't price gouge, that we don't, I mean, it's that feeling you get when you go into like ACL and you pay $7 for like a bottle of water. You're like, really? Really? Because, because, that feels like gouging to me. 
it's a way that we learn to do business where we don't necessarily profit at someone else's expense, but there's goods and services being transacted. So people, multiple people are benefiting at the same time. This is how God intended our economy to function. This is God's restoration of all things. And so um, I have to tell you the story. I had a friend um, probably 20 years ago and he was living in Southern California and he was a very creative guy. Uh, his name was Vince and he started a clothing company and it was really interesting. Uh, he, he named it Jedediah, which Jedediah was a name given to Solomon uh, that Solomon never actually went by, um, but it was simply the name that actually translated loved by God. And what my friend Vince did was he created a whole label for a subculture of people that felt like the establishment did not welcome them. And so here you had all these really alternative kids who are into surf culture, they're into skate culture, anything with a board. It was snowboarding. And he created a whole label around sponsoring and creating a brand that would affirm. And what he was saying is, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you can accept it or not, you are loved by God. And so people were being sponsored under the name Jedediah so that he could give them a new name. Because they wouldn't come to church. They wouldn't come to a Bible study. They wouldn't come to anything that he was hosting. So he wanted to figure out a way to restore faith, to restore a people group that felt marginalized. And he created this whole label based on trying to rename them, not as unloved, not as anarchist, not as rebel, not as crook or thief or, or, or bastard son, but Jedediah. And so he had this great logo that would say, I am, you are loved by God. Who are you? You're Jedediah. You don't even have to believe it, but you are. We are called to the ministry of restoration. And so what we have out of this passage is that he's willing to grieve. And we start to read that in verse one and he goes prayer and fasting almost at the sound of the news. And this is what I would say. And this is important to say because I don't think we talk enough about grieving. We're not a people that are good at grieving. When I feel bad, I put on comfy clothes and wanna eat ice cream. Um, but there is times where God wants to redeem our grieving. Now, there's two ways to process grief that which is what I would call permeable and that which is paralyzed. Let me talk about the difference of the two because when things are permeable, they're able to be filtered through and it affects us on a deep level and we're just trying to discern how we should in fact respond. Super important for the people of God to discern when there's things going on in your city, how are you able to or called to participate in that restoration work. So when you hear things going on in the news or you hear things that are happening in your neighborhood or when you hear there's a family at your school and they're having a hard time and they're having a hard time receiving help, you go, God, how are you inviting me to participate? Well, I've got some people that can pray on the behalf of that family, right? You understand that 
there are things in our lives that begin to be permeable. Now, there's another way that things happen when we start to grieve and we get paralyzed. That can happen sometimes we get so affected and we get paralyzed by our grief. And, and a couple of things can happen. We can get really angry. We can get cynical. We can get paralyzed by fear and we end up accepting it. Well, stinks to be them. Well, <laughs> Racism's terrible. I think that there's a problem with it, but I don't know how to help it in any way. It's just the way things are. Or, boy, homelessness, that's a problem in our town. We've got a lot of those people. I think the way I'll help is just to not be enabling the problem so I won't give to these people. Well, there's mental illness, so I don't know. Wait a second. Jeremiah 29 says, seek the prosperity of the city that you live in because if it benefits, we all benefit. You understand that when God said that in, in Jeremiah 29, 11, what he was saying is to people in exile. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future, which we love that, except before that, he says, yeah, I'll deliver you, but it might be another 70 years. So in the meantime, go ahead and plant some crops. In the meantime, Go ahead and marry off your sons and daughters. In the meantime, build your homes. Do the business. Because if the city prospers, then you prosper. See, I'm worried that our grief leads us so full of maybe anger, cynicism, or fear that we don't respond to the needs among us. God has called us to grieve. Otherwise, he would never have created the ability to grieve. So it has to be permeable. And there are things that I think are going to affect some of us deeper than others. I am a son of an immigrant. I grew up in a melting pot. So when you start talking to me about people living in the town that I live in, I've been moved by foreigners not being able to figure out culture on their own. So that has become a thing for me. And you know that because I talk about it a lot. But that's my thing. And I'm not wait, I don't want you to wait for me to create all the programs to finally figure out which one works for you. I'm saying we're all called to the ministry of restoration. And with some divine entrepreneurship, I would love to continue to meet more needs and participate more in the city. So whether it be teen moms, whether it be um, single parents, whether it be homelessness, whether it be elderly or cancer patients, whether it be AIDS, there are things that God wants to move us to, and sometimes we need to get over our paralysis and so we can just pray, God, help me to grieve in a way that honors you most. So he prays a prayer, um, and, and it's a, it, I just want to uh, draw a couple of highlights out. He says, um, I don't think I have the whole thing. It says, uh, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and, uh, and awesome God, I have to find the light, uh, let your ear be attentive and your eyes um, open to hear, the, to hear the prayer of your servant in praying before you. Day and night, your servants, uh, the people of Israel, confess the sins of, of the Israelites, including myself, my father's house, have committed. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not uh, obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws that you serve. What I love about this is that he's praying a prayer 
not a veiled blame that some other party, some other group, this was a collective prayer and he's calling out. And what we want to do so much of the time is, is sort of segment out some group and say, Oh, if it wasn't for that party, we wouldn't have a problem with abortion. If it wasn't a problem, gun control. I'm saying, you know what? If, if gun control is your issue, I would just simply start by saying, why don't we just consider how we raise our kids on violent video games? Because they're practicing killing by video games. So if that's your issue, that's not a party problem, it's a collective problem, how we're parenting. We've lost a social fabric. Talk to the homeless people, you realize that they're far from family. They're not close to family. This is a systemic societal problem, and, and we're lost when we start to blame one party or, or, a, or a failed government. And what he starts to do is he starts to inherit and say, no, 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 this is me. I'm, I could have done more. I, God, how do you want to use me? And then he goes, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And then he starts to remind him of his faithfulness, remind him and said, how you said in your covenant with Moses, if you do this, then you'll do this. And then he drops down to, uh, 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 it, it says, remember the instruction you gave to your servant. If, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you uh, among the nations. But if you return to me and my commands, then even if your exiled people uh, are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. And all of a sudden, he starts quoting back to God the promises of God. And what we see uh, out of this passage is that Nehemiah begins to talk about the means to restore, and he restores people uh, who are, uh, and I, I would just say, God restores us through the people who are restored in Christ's life, right? So, so when we walk into a situation, and it starts to break our heart. And to the extent that I'm aligned with God, my heart becomes moved as well because God has given us his mind. We have the mind of Christ. We have the strength of Christ. We have God's spirit, right? Uh, and so God has given us the ability to carry this out. And so the starting point for passion and a cause is not just to meet some need and then be moved, right? Oh, I found a need. But when we walk with God and in the spirit, God moves us. The point is that God gives us a unique lens for the situation that we stumble across and we go, enough, that's not right. Someone ought to do something. See, we don't need to go around looking for a cause. The cause usually finds us and it feels like an emotional trigger. Someone got to do it. I'll call Dave because Dave, you should do something about it. No, no, no. Like, seriously, I got enough going on. I'm putting enough, enough fires. If God is moving you, I'm saying answer that call. If something just doesn't feel right. And so he, he starts this kind of process of what I call intercession. It's been 140 years and yet he steps up and he identifies his own brokenness with these broken walls. And intercession is a form of prayer that I would define as praying on behalf of someone who cannot or will not pray for themselves. It's what we do as parents. We stand in the gap, hopefully bringing the hand of God 
to our child's hand so that they have their own faith in him. But there are times God calls us to stand in the gap, those who cannot or will not pray for themselves. And what Nehemiah does is he begins to grieve over a people who aren't concerned enough about their national identity and their calling as the people of God with his own response. And then he starts to talk about we have acted corruptly. It's this confession of the collective. He doesn't blame a political party. And then he starts to remind of God's character and his promises. You said that you'd bless us. And to the extent that we know Scripture, we can claim God's promises. And that's why it's so important for us to actually know who God is. Simple exercise. Google the names of God. There will be a countless list. Because if you only know God as provider or protector, I would just challenge you to grow your thesaurus and know the character and the nature of God. And that's what he does. See, we are a church that is a church of practice and experimentation, which is another way of saying we won't and don't always get it right. But the idea is that we have enough grace to keep trying. God cannot or will not steer a parked car. So what we want to do is take on a living faith. That was the whole vision behind starting Mission Hills and uniting around some shared rhythms that we then know how to give away to other people. Exercising faith by trying. Exercising faith together. Exercising faith in restoring God's kingdom beginning here in Austin. Friends, uh, one of the ways that I want to grow uh, our church is seeing what God is stirring in your hearts. We've done some different things related to foster care or teen moms or um, we've done some things with refugees. And, and, but there are going to be things that are in your heart that are not even on my radar. And I want to just fan into flame that response. In fact, I want to tell you about one thing that we're now entering into a discernment process of. Um, there was a lady that I had uh, coffee with a couple of months ago, and she started about 10 years ago an organization called Fostering Hope Austin. Fostering Hope Austin is what you can imagine. It is about foster care. Um, and the statistics are staggering about the quality or lack of quality of life for people who are in the foster care system. And she has three adoptive kids and um, a very strong, committed Christian, and yet she operates in the nonprofit world. And so I started having a conversation with her, and then it just dawned on me. I was like, what if we had a group of families or a group of friends that said, I'm not called to foster myself, but maybe what I could do is support a family who's fostering. Because you're inheriting special needs kids oftentimes, people who have got some abandonment issues, got some rejection, got some intimacy issues. But how could we come alongside families who are doing this work? And then I kind of sent off an email to, because I prayed about it, and had a little bit of a nudge to send an email to Ian and Hannah Mouton, who just had their fourth kid uh, and um, aren't looking for more to do. But I just said, I don't know if you've thought about this, but there's this luncheon coming up. I wonder if you would go with me. And if you, 
first response, boy, uh, we're busy, got a lot, uh, but do you know that we've always talked about adopting and fostering has always been on our radar? Doesn't surprise me at this point, but I'll go with it. So we went to a lunch and we had a meeting. And so all I'm saying now, I'm not saying that's gonna happen in two months. I'm just saying we're entering a discernment time. And part of the discernment is, are there other people in our church that say, I kind of am feeling a nudge. I, I could see myself lending support to foster care and be a part of a, a, maybe a new tribe that their mission is to support a foster family through training, babysitting, household care. I mean, there, there's a number of ways that a tribe could rally around and just make it a nice division of labor. But there's also gonna be some people that God raises up in their own community that aren't a part of Mission Hills, that don't have a church home, but say, would you wanna partner with us? My point in all of this is saying we need to be open to God doing God's restoration through us. And so when a cause or an issue tugs at your heart, you go, how do I grieve that? How do I respond? Is there an area where I can stand in the gap? And what we're going to see is that Nehemiah has everything going for him, and he throws it all in for a non-guaranteed project and said, I got to go do this. I'm going all in because I can't not do this. So I want to invite you to pray with me, not just now, but I want you to be thinking about what would it mean to start a new tribe? Is there a mission that we have yet pioneered? Is there fostering that might... I'd encourage you just to say, you know, we've talked about that. That would be an interesting thing and talk to Ian and Hannah because they're just entering a discernment time themselves. This isn't gonna something we start right away, but we might start talking about, hey, we're doing an orientation meeting. If some of you have some interest in getting some training in this, a little more information about this. And so we're gonna be rolling that out. Which is another way of saying, read my emails, check Facebook. Those are our means of communication. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would stir in our hearts not one of accusation and blame, but of personal responsibility to be full participant in your restoration on earth. I pray that you would help us to come more alive in how we grieve. Resensitize our hearts to the needs that are most near to us, proximity-wise, geographically, in Austin, so that we could sow seeds of redemption, so that we could sow seeds of healing, Lord, I believe that you have invited each of us to participate more deeply with you. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see that which you see. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that you would just stir in our hearts that kind of growing awareness of your presence and your call. In Jesus' name.